Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. In travel news, Hotels.com has released a list of their lowest-priced and highest-rated rooms. Topping the list is the Dolphin Hotel. Reviews proclaim, There's something here that just won't let me leave. The ice machines are a real lifesaver. And lastly, The walls. Dear God, look at the walls. Wow, sounds pretty. Book your stay today. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside C.M. Alexander, Hello, everybody, and Benjamin Graham. What's happening? Oh, what a weird intro for this episode, for a very weird episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Dairy Public Radio. Today we are going to be covering the short story, uh, 1408, and for some reason CMI and I decided to bring the show in in a very weird way. We're going to have to take a solid 15 minutes for my brain to recover. <laughs> that was alien. Uh, it, it Unfortunately, very reminiscent of the end of this book. So I'm kind of freaked out, guys. Good. Well, Ben, you're leading the discussion today, so take it away. I'm legitimately unnerved. <laughs> upsetting. Sorry. We didn't we didn't no, rehearse this, that. We no. just went for it and it worked. <laughs> a great intro because um I wanted to ask you guys if this story upsets you nearly as much as it does me. It does me. It does not me. I think we ruined really? it for Josh. Really? <laughs> yeah, we may have. So when we, when we <laughs> chose to do uh, 1408, uh, this is the first short story we've ever done. We've done some of his novellas, but we haven't done any short stories. One of my favorite things is a Stephen King short story. And when we choose, chose this one, I remembered loving this short story and finding it really creepy. But God damn, it's so unnerving. And yeah, I'm sorry if we built it up too much for you, Josh. (laughs) No, and I don't think it was you guys building it up necessarily. I actually, so um, you guys talked about how scary this was. So I read this by myself in a dark room during a thunderstorm, uh, which was actually really cool. A cool way to read this story. I just don't like uh haunting stories and that's really? kind of what why is that ah uh, this is gonna be weird i feel like it lends itself to just being able to cheat <laughs> but because explain I, I, well the rules aren't clear that it's i have a problem with with jump scares in movies i hate jump scares uh, and I hate haunting things because, oh, something's chasing you down the hall. You run, close the door behind you, you turn around and it's there because it doesn't make sense. I I disagree that there are no <laughs> rules because the great thing about a haunting story is there are rules. It's the rules of the real world. It is if you're talking about a haunted house or in this case, a haunted hotel room, the rules are you're supposed to believe this is the real world. Anything that happens outside of that 
shouldn't be happening. I agree, but that's what makes it scary. So yeah, I think that's that's pretty crazy. And, well, and, and this is I, I'm talking broad strokes, sure. haunting stuff. The things that happen in this book are definitely unnerving. Oh yeah, and it is like a fever dream. It reminded me a lot of the last twenty minutes of Mother. That's yes. <laughs> uh, everyone, go watch that movie if you haven't. It's nuts. It's bananas. It's it is nutso butso. Anyway. Uh, interesting you say fever dream before we move on to the actual book this is just fascinating to me do you like uh, like dream sequences in movies or TV oh god it, it's hit or miss it, it, just, it depends on the content it depends on what it, it adds to the story that's really interesting because it's the same thing I love this story I love I loved the movie and I love dream sequences because they break you know, rules because it's so disjointed. So I find that interesting. How about you, Sian? This is a personal just thing. No, I I love dream sequences. I, as you guys were talking, I couldn't help but think of, okay, my fear, I can watch any horror movie, slashers, love it, Mm -hmm. you know, scary boogeyman, love it. I'm really kind of terrified easily of ghost things and alien things. And that, that dream sequence type thing Mm -hmm. when it's in those kinds of movies freaks me out really hard. I think of movies like fire in the sky and the other alien one with Christopher Walken. Uh, Shoot. I'm so sorry, you guys. I can't remember. The dead zone. (laughs) No, it's about, (laughs) Oh, Mars attacks. Was he in Mars attacks? Uh, I think he was in Mars attacks. No, the scary one, Ben. Oh, okay. (laughs) Anyway, I have no idea. It's terrifying. These, this couple gets abducted every night and they go through these horrific things, but their memories are wiped. So the next morning, they have no idea. Huh. That's yeah. awesome. I'm See, that sounds hor- great. It's horrifying. That sounds kick-ass. Anyway, uh, enough about uh, uh, dream sequences and completely unrelated <laughs> things. Um, let's get into our short story. It's so good. And it starts in Media Res, our main character, Mike Eslin, walking into a hotel. I've never thought about it, but uh, in the in the intro to the book, um, Stephen King writes a little intro to each story, which I think is super cool. Yeah. He mentions that hotels are just a naturally scary place. Never thought about it before, but <laughs> yeah. They've never bothered me. I guess what disturbed me the most was, wasn't necessarily like, think about who maybe has died in this bed before you and yes. what's gone on. It was mostly, I was thinking about like, what if somebody slept in this bed and they sweat really gross? <laughs> and that's just like part of this mattress now and these pillows. That is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of traveling and I've never given a second thought to a single room I've ever stayed in. Uh, I, I'm not going to be able to help myself <laughs> from now on. Anyway, uh, our character, Mike Enslin is a writer of uh, these kind of corny books, right? Did, did you oh, get yeah. the feeling of that? I, I feel like those are the books that uh, you could buy at the uh, at your book fair in grade school. Absolutely. Yeah. How to Survive 10 Haunted Places. It's a book I'd buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can picture them in like uh, an airport gift shop. Oh, for like, sure. Uh, these books are, he stays overnight at, supposedly haunted places uh, and then writes these cheesy books about them that he hates. I love that he hates them. (laughs) And he never, 
the interesting thing about what he's writing about, though, is that he's not a believer. He mm. has never experienced a paranormal event. It, it reminded me of um, House on Haunted Hill, the series that we all just watched recently based off the Shirley Jackson novel. Haunting of Hill House? It reminds me of The Haunting of Hill House. <laughs> Which, see, I hate haunting things. I loved Haunting of Hill House because it's done right. Okay. Every, the things that happen make sense when they happen. The rules of the house make sense. St- still haven't watched it. <laughs> oh, it's so good. That has done to me what 1408 did when I first read it. So you definitely need to watch it. I will. Okay, I have a question about Mike. Yes. So a question that we, I find that we ask this question often of our king protagonists. Is Mike an asshole? Book? No. Okay. Movie? Absolutely. <laughs> movie, yeah, movie 100%. No, I don't think he's an asshole. I think he's a little jaded, and that he's comes through. incredibly insecure. As, as we meet him, he walks into this uh, this hotel and is immediately uh, met by the manager of the hotel. Um, Olin. Olin. I was trying to figure out if he had a first name. I don't think he does. I don't think he He's yeah. just Mr. Olin. Meets him and uh, ushers him into his office. And throughout this conversation, Mike is constantly like imagining, imagining contempt for yes. him for his books, uh, which isn't there. No, he's definitely projecting the contempt he feels for himself onto other people. Interesting word, because I wanted to ask you guys how much you think King projects on his protagonists. Because every writer that we have met, they are never successful, or if they are, they hate what they write. Like Paul Sheldon. Yes, exactly. They never get uh, success or fame for something they believe in. Well, How much do you think that maybe, is uh, coming from King himself? Maybe that is King's... Okay, so he writes about horror. So I wonder, does horror scare him? Because he's living in that world. So maybe this is his horror. This is what scares him, being... Uh, unsuccessful hack writer writing about things that you don't feel proud of, that you don't feel further anything in society. Well, I mean, famously, like when King first started out, he was pretty much torn apart. Like any serious media or uh, literary journals are like, oh, he's just some, he's a paperback writer. He just writes horror and whatever. And so it makes me feel like maybe it's just a leftover of from when he wasn't as insanely successful as he is now, where he can be like, I don't care what these people think. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it just feels so personal. These authors are who he could have ended up as. Yes, I agree. It's his horror. Yeah. No, I I I fully believe that. Yeah. Anyway, so um, Olin has taken Mike into his office. Uh, Because Mike is interested in staying the night for his next book in a certain room, room 1408 of the Dolphin Hotel. Which adds up to 13. (laughs) (laughs) Which everyone uh, involved in the book and the movie is very proud of. I feel like (laughs) they make uh, in the movie specifically... Um, John Cusack, who plays Mike Enslin, 
uh, gets a note uh, postcard that says, don't stay in 1408. And he, like, there's very pointedly writes down and, like, does the math. And then goes, <laughs> oh, it equals 13. <laughs> it's like, yes, Mike, we all get it. <laughs> uh, anyway, tell, tell, uh, tell about this meeting and why Olin doesn't want Mike to stay. Olin, at this point, he is genuinely concerned for Mike's future with the possibility of staying in this room uh one of the things i think is very cool is that uh olin seems to gain more power Uh, like mike talks about he seems more in control when they're in his office and he kind of takes control of the conversation and tells him about all of the, the the different deaths the the jumpers the people slitting their wrists self mutilation uh hanging themselves all the different things And then he goes a step further and he talks about that there are more more than 50 deaths have been in this room. And you just for your own safety, I'm begging you. The law says we have to let you. But I'm saying one last time, please don't do this. In the book, it is uh, there have been 12 suicides in 1408, but over 30 natural deaths which is way more upsetting. I think it's interesting too the way this conversation occurs because at first Mike, wait, Mike. Yeah, Jesus. There have been a lot of mics, sorry. <laughs> um Mike and like and the reader could reasonably make the assumption that Olin is trying to build this up because if this room really wasn't haunted and they just wanted to drum up some publicity for their hotel how freaking awesome a plan is that, that you are going to beg this writer not to stay in it because you are so concerned for his safety. Mm-hmm. So there is that, there was that brief moment for me at least where it was like, oh, you know, I mean, I know it happens, but <laughs> yeah. could, it was written well enough. That I thought, yeah, mm-hmm. he could just be playing him and that's a really good strategy. But then he goes into um, how he won't go near the room and when they turn it once a month, they do it in pairs and he supervises and he doesn't let anyone stay in the room for more than, I think it's 10 minutes at a time yeah, because, because terrible things happen in that des- brief time. He describes the room as being like full of poison gas, mm-hmm. that it is so toxic just to be inside this room. Uh, one of the one of the women that helps turn this room down once went blind when she was in this room, uh, just from being in there and then laughed hysterically as they pulled her out. And other people who have spent any small amount of time in the room cleaning it, they just have these chronic health problems Mm -hmm. shortly after that, that are with them their entire lives. And he has attributed the evil or whatever is in the room to, to those illnesses. So he's like, you know, it, it can affect you just briefly. Yeah. That, it's a good fucking pitch. It really is. And he even, I, I love the moment. Uh, they do a great job of this in the movie too, of when Olin says this room isn't haunted. There's not like a, a boogeyman in there. The room, like it exists to be evil there. The room is something Does that remind you of anything. I was just going to ask, like if we were in the club, do you think that there is a, 
a sinister door that we could open that would lead to 1408? Oh, I'm sure. Or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it reminded me of uh, the Marston House, where yeah. it is somehow... Uh, at the beginning of the story, I figured it was something that like this room has just absorbed all of this negative energy of all these terrible things that it has just become evil itself. Once we find out what happens to Mike in the room, I don't think that's it anymore. No, Uh, it is something much, much worse. Uh, But that's kind of what the feeling this gave me. It is like an old one. Like it feeds mm-hmm. off of despair, fear, something, but it is its form is a oh, room. Well, once we get to, into the room, <laughs> uh, the Lovecraft influences are very, very strong, and I love it. I have a question about something that uh, Olin tells him. Olin points out that. The reason Mike has never he's stayed in all of these supposedly haunted places and the reason he has never experienced anything is because he doesn't believe something. A a specter could be right in front of him, but because he doesn't believe he just can't see that existence. And he thinks that that is going to be what destroys him in 1408 faster than anything. Mm -hmm. How did you guys feel about that? Conflicted because Part of me would think that that would be a protection factor. If he couldn't see that, then why would he experience anything unusual in 1408? But I think that just speaks to how powerful 1408 is, ultimately. I took it more of a... It's it's going to be your downfall because not believing is what's going to make you uh, go in there at all. Like, I don't believe... I don't sure, okay. think that his belief... Once you go into 1408, I don't think it matters. Like, if you go in alone. It has you. Yeah. Yeah, uh, So I, I took it more of a, you don't, you, you should be a believer. Because if you were a believer, you'd be fucking listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing is that on, uh, they, when they leave the office, he's got the key, they head in the elevator. He, he mentions something. I, I just thought these were, um, potentially, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, some nods to the shining where he, the first is that the two most successful housekeepers that kept the room in order were twins Mm -hmm. and their, their twin power saved them, which I thought was interesting. And then the other thing is that he mentions that the dolphin is owned by the Stanley corporation, which the Stanley hotel is the name of the, the overlook. Mm -hmm. I yeah, think so, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was uh, was neat. Because I think even in that beginning part, he says this this short story was written kind of as an exercise. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't writing to to structure a story like this to scare us. He was, he was just yeah, he was yeah. just enjoying writing the story. So I thought that was neat that he chose for Which, enjoyable writing, <laughs> just putting those references in there. So cool and also so upsetting to think of how many other things do you think King just like dad just an idea that he's like dashed out and he's like huh yeah. interesting and then just left right <laughs> that we'll never read something as good as this that he was just like nah I- <laughs> there are napkins that have uh, great stories <laughs> I, I i believe that can i just say one more thing about olin yes i love him yes agreed he is so 
cool. His just, you know, Josh, he already described it the way he comes into himself when he's in his office and he just gives this sense of a, a caring, professional, just intriguing person. Yes, he's uh, the differences between Olin in the book and the movie, I thought were the biggest differences mm-hmm. uh, because in the movie, they're very confrontational. Yes. Like this whole scene, it is very much more Mike's a huge dick and Samuel L. Jackson is Samuel L. Jackson shit. is Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> yeah. And like in the movie, he says, like, I'm not trying to talk you out of this because I care about you or anything. Uh I, I care about I don't want to clean up the mess, you think he says. Which brings me to, if I can, one of my favorite parts of this book. And it's right before um, they're they're on their way to the room. It's before Mike gets there. And Olin is asking him why he just didn't create like a fictional resonant for 1408 to keep people out. He's like, that would have mm-hmm. solved your problem. Why didn't you do that? And Olin says, I guess, you know, I was afraid of the fraud. You know, I might get in trouble. Um, civil rights laws. Then my bosses would get wind of it. And if I couldn't persuade you to stay out of 1408 i doubt that i would have had much more luck in convincing the stanley corporation's board of directors that i took a perfectly good room off the market because i was afraid that spooks caused the occasional traveling salesman to jump out the window and splatter himself all over 61st street and that speech and just the way he is with mike is so much more effective and terrifying Mm -hmm. than that more bribey, confrontational way that they do it in the movie. Completely agreed. Yeah, 100%. Also in the book, uh, this is completely uh, irrelevant, but I could not help uh, imagining Olin as Philip Seymour Hoffman. I don't know, maybe that's just me. Anyway, that brings us to the the fucking good stuff. (laughs) Maybe it's weird to describe uh, my favorite part of a short story being efficiency does that make sense <laughs> it does it it cuts out all the fat it's only it is the the good stuff it is, it is so quick and he writes so upsettingly with so little very little happens at the beginning but immediately you're like this is bad remind me when does it tell us the staggeringly short amount of time that Mike actually spends in this room. It is right up top. It goes into uh, uh, Olin says, lets him off the elevator and says, I don't go any closer to 1408. You're on your own. And it goes to part two and immediately it says Mike spends 70 minutes in 1408. That's it. And it also tells us that after his stay, all that is taken out of 1408 is a burned and charred miniature tape recorder. I thought that was awesome. And immediately you're like, oh no. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, uh, it's one of my favorite thing King does. It's one of his best writing tricks. Uh, it's the same of the stand that we just finished where uh, he'll go, oh, um, you know, Kojak lived uh, a long time another 30 years much longer than glenn bateman (laughs) and you're like what's gonna happen that is this it's like he has 70 minutes until something fucking bad happens 
can I ask you guys about what for me has become like, what's it called? The glory shot? Excuse me? The money shot? That's not better. Glory hole money shot. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I am very interested to hear what you're about to say. (laughs) Sam, get off your Google search history. (laughs) Get Um, to your notes. Okay, well, now this is going to be disappointing. (laughs) I I think it was in one of our first episodes. We were all, maybe it was a couple after that, but we're all talking about what gets us into Stephen King and some of our favorite Stephen King moments and mine, and I've talked about it, so I won't go into that again, but it's this scene where Mike walks up to the door and the way that the door is described. And I I actually put off reading this book for like two weeks. I had to rush and read it before we got together to watch the movie <laughs> because I didn't want to read it and go to bed and have nightmares. And reading it again, I was like, oh, okay, this isn't, as crazy <laughs> as I remembered, but because it was so unsettling and I, it reminds me of house of leaves. If anyone's ever read that, that if you book. don't know what that is, just go buy it yeah. and you'll think us later. But I want to know what you guys thought because I made such a big deal out of that. Did, was it effective for anyone? I uh, remember you brought this up during Salem's lot. That that's what okay. the the book that we discussed this, uh, the writing doors, and I finished this part where he describes the door, and I was like, "That's it," because <laughs> <laughs> just because uh, that I will admit you had that hyped in my head I've as like this door is going to be so this is going to be four pages of a door, and I'm going to be freaking out, and I was like, "Oh, it just." Gets cattywampus, yeah, and then he goes it inside. Just has a Dutch <laughs> angle. I, I guess. I, I guess at the time I read that, I hadn't read anything like House of Leaves, and so the idea of something being grotesquely off about something so mundane as a door blew my mind. That is, it's it's very creepy. Should we describe what happens to the it door? Is, I have yeah. uh, written in my notes the list of the hauntings, oh. and it starts uh, with this. Haunt number one, the door. He walks up, and as he reaches for the handle, he notices the door is just slightly askew. That's it. It is it is slightly askew, and as he reaches for his uh, mini cassette recorder, he uh, is about to say, well, this is a good touch. It's, uh, it's slightly, and he looks up, and it's fine. And then he puts his recorder away and looks up, and it's off the other way it's so it's just like you said sam it's something so mundane just being off a little bit it's very creepy and he already is getting the sensation of seasickness in his stomach by seeing the door just slightly where it shouldn't be and if that's where we that was a moment i was like if this is where we're starting holy shit what's gonna happen uh, so he he igno- ignores this, puts it up to Olin got in my head. He blames Olin a lot, and Olin's so nice. He really does. <laughs> I think like, it's the room. We'll he just says, yeah, yeah, Olin got in my head. It's got to me. Fuck it. I'm going in. He goes in. And he checks out the room. It's a very simple two-room hotel room. And the first thing he checks is the window. Uh, which is barred because six people have jumped from this window. In retrospect, barring that window seems cruel. 
it's in retrospect <laughs> yeah because between jumping and what mike faces at the end uh yeah what what do you say splattering on 64th street seems like <laughs> a good option it's solid trade but he he walks around the room and he comes to my favorite part of this story the pictures oh yeah the pictures are awesome there are three paintings hung in this room and uh they are all crooked and immediately this is where my personal sense of unease skyrockets and when we talk about this what i thought helped make it most effective you know as you're about to describe what these pictures are doing the in the book it kind of steps away from his perspective and it's referencing later what people hear on the mini recorder and um, just the like one word references or very short phrases he makes Mm -hmm. that are purely from like his brain kind of going crazy and making all these weird connections. He doesn't say anything coherent. Yes. His, his mini cassette recorder that they listen to it, it starts off with him like talking about the window and then everything he says past that is just slightly it's it's weird and it it even says in the book like at this point the listener hears you know the tape click on and mike say random Mm. something (laughs) and and uh that's where we first get it with these pictures the first picture is a picture of a lady uh in old-timey dress on a stairway holding a baby the second is an old uh, what are they called? Cur- like Courier and Ives painting of a, a ship, a sailboat. And the third and most upsetting. I know what I'm painting you for Christmas. <laughs> you best not, because that thing will be thrown off a bridge. A still life of some fruit in orange sunset light. Why do you guys think he is drawn to the third painting because throughout the rest of the the book the other two are mentioned but he keeps coming back to that third painting because he's hungry (laughs) that's it that the the, that orange light becomes so uh, it it sets the it's it's the color palette of the story is the sunset Mm -hmm. orange and uh it's it's he's almost hypnotized by it which is where we get our first of these disjointed recordings is as he's staring at this painting and imagining underneath the painting bugs crawling in the walls yeah it which is just the fucking creepiest imagery and it's all in his head it's not real which is more upsetting but as he's staring at it and imagining these bugs crawling in the walls, he picks up his micro uh, micro cassette recorder and just records fuming orange. Wait, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, that's it. Or fuming orange, fuming oranges, and then clicks it off. Fuck that! That's terrifying. <laughs> it's. I wrote down. There's a few other things that he says into my into the recorder. Don't know if you guys have had this experience. It reminds me of shroom thoughts. It's <laughs> very shroom. It's this disconnected, like it doesn't come from your own brain. It's just, mm. um, one time 
Uh, Mom, if you're listening to the podcast, <laughs> you, can, you can skip forward Close 30 seconds. Uh, one time I uh, was on shrooms and uh, tried to watch Adventure Time and it freaked me out really bad. So I <laughs> just laid in bed for like three hours with my eyes closed. And the next morning I woke up to a text message from myself that just said slow motion pizza explosion. <laughs> That's amazing. So that is what I don't know, but I will remember it forever. But anyway, that's kind of what I, as he's walking around the room, um, when he goes into the bedroom, which we'll get to, he just says Orpheus on the Orpheum circuit. Actually, Ben, that doesn't uh, mean anything. Ben, um, what the funny thing is we actually have the tape. We've got a copy of the tape of Mike Enslin's tape. I've got a, a downloaded that. This is going to scare my I'm, shit. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna, oh, I'm man. gonna play this for you guys. It's gonna be terrifying. Okay. six people have jumped from the window I'm looking at. But I won't be taking any dives from the 14th, excuse me, the 13th floor of Hotel Dolphin tonight. There's an iron or steel mesh grill over the outside. Better safe than sorry. 1408 is what you call a junior suite, I guess. The room I'm in has two chairs, a sofa, a writing desk, a cabinet that probably contains the TV and maybe a mini bar. Carpet on the floor is unremarkable. Not a patch on Owens, believe me. Wallpaper, ditto. It... Wait. I've got to get a hold of myself. Right now. <clears throat> I had a little vertigo for a minute or two. It might have been a hangover from Owen's yarning. But I could believe I feel a genuine presence here. The air is stale, not, not musty or foul-smelling. Owen said the place gets aired every time it gets turned, but the turns are quick and... Yeah. It's stale. Hey, look at this. The matchbook in the ashtray looks like it comes from about 1955. Keeping it as a souvenir. Now it's time for a little fresh air. shut, but the top half came down all right. I can hear the traffic on Fifth Avenue and all the beeping horns have a, a comforting quality. Someone is playing a saxophone perhaps in front of the plaza, which is across the street and two blocks down. It reminds me of my brother. Well, my brother was actually eaten by wolves one winter on the Connecticut Turnpike. <laughs> circuit. That isn't a real plum. It's a plastic plum. No. <laughs> I don't like that at all. <laughs> For those of you who can't see Ben, he was just shaking his head no <laughs> the entire time. No, I don't enjoy that at all. <laughs> That's so fucking scary. And it's nothing. 
it's it's gibberish. Ah, ah I don't like it. Although this is uh, does bring up something that we've kind of skipped past, hmm. uh, which is Mike's connection to his brother, which is so on the periphery of the story. It's not a main point. It just kind of informs uh, Mike's character. Uh, Mike always has a cigarette behind his ear because his brother died of cancer nine years ago and he hasn't smoked since. It's not a prominent bit. Like, um, in the movie, it changes it to his daughter. His daughter had... Uh, some sort of it's kind of implied it's cancer, right? Yeah, yeah. terminal. And yeah, and and she passed away, and it's like a huge part of the story. But in the book, this is what I meant by efficiency. Like it's it's just in the background. Mm-hmm. It adds to it, but and whenever it's brought up, once he enters the room, it's wrong because he says his brother got eaten by wolves, mm-hmm. and uh, leads us to. The haunt number two. Uh, Mike goes into the bedroom. All I have to say is he describes pillows as tumorous bulges, which I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, the the little details. While he's entering the bedroom, he's reaching for the light switch and he just briefly brushes the wallpaper. God, that was disgusting. And says it feels like, it's it's one of those parentheticals where it's just his thought. He's like, it's unpleasant. And then in parentheses, dead skin. It feels like dead skin. I have never felt anything that has made me think, this feels like dead skin. (laughs) Uh, You haven't felt enough dead skin, I guess. I guess not. Uh, And even worse is when he, he walks over to the bed, which is the same sunset orange of the the still life he goes to pick up the menu and just brushing the bed sheet makes him moan it's so creepy and the menu thing is the menu bit was great haunt number two fuck me (laughs) he, he picks up the menu for the room and it's in russian and french and italian like every time he opens his eyes closes his eyes and opens them it's in a different language and okay so that's like disconcerting but then he talks about how uh he was looking at the breakfast temptation and it's eggs waffles fresh berries birds roasted in shit yeah uh, yeah, it's it it's in French too. Mm-hmm. When he reads yeah, that, he and he's like, he French. doesn't speak French, but oh, he, he knows. I missed no, that. it's a, he doesn't <laughs> speak or read French, but he knows one of the items is birds roasted in shit. See, I just thought he, you know, like sometimes you pick up a phrase, and I thought the uh, like phrase that he picked up, well, yeah, because yeah, yeah. that's useful. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he's he's blinking over and over. And then he blinks and opens his eyes and he's holding a woodcut picture of a little boy whose arm is being ripped off by wolves. And he just stares at it. That was the moment the note I made was, this is a full-blown fever dream. That's where I made that note. (laughs) Uh, I actually have a note at this point. I was not brave enough to read this alone in the dark. I was, it was the middle of the day in my favorite coffee shop, one of my happy places where I feel completely safe. Oh no, Ben. (laughs) I I was taking notes on my phone and when I 
went to write down the haunt number two, the menu. I had my thumb, my other thumb in the book. And I could not finish the note because I had to put the book down. Because I did not like the feeling of my thumb being in this story. Oh, that's so weird. Did it feel like dead skin? It, it, was me- it felt like the book was going to fucking bite me. I like, I, that's how that's amazing. upset this book, this story makes me. It's, I'm not kidding when I say, I honestly think this is the scariest thing Stephen King has ever I done. had to put it face down with the spine facing me so the pages weren't facing towards my head as I slept. <laughs> yeah, it's... Guys! I know! I know. Wow! <laughs> yeah. I would like... Alright. <laughs> it's the speed at which it all happens because this has been... Uh, and we've been, spent a lot of time talking about this. It's been like 10 pages. Yeah. <laughs> if that. Well, and then while he isn't, while he's in the bedroom... All of a sudden, there's this picture there that wasn't there before. Yeah, and yeah, it's of a plum. And the okay, this comes back again later. But he says that there's this tango light. It's this this like weird. He talks about this weird creepy light that's falling like across the oranges mm-hmm. and then across this plum. The kind of light that makes the dead get up out of their graves in tango. The kind of light. And then that's when he has the thought: I have to get out of here. Like that's how quickly he goes mm-hmm. in. Sees a weird door, some pictures, wallpaper and bed feel gross, menus fucked up, pictures are appearing, and he's like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> and as he he walks across, uh, the, yeah, the plum that was on the bedside until he looks back and it's a picture. The, uh, that's Haunt 3, and Haunt 4 is as he's walking back to the door, he feels the carpet sucking at his shoes. Oh. Like, like <laughs> deep mud. Yeah. I, I, it gave you it gave the sensation of uh, like that he was in the room's mouth. Ex- yes, exactly. He's swallowed. Yeah. The room is alive. Uh, we actually get that because uh, he he thinks he imagines as he's walking across the room. He he doesn't think he has his mini recorder, and he imagines the room being di- room digesting it and excreting it out into one of the pictures. I could see that happening. Uh, Especially because haunt number five is the pictures. pictures. Uh, The ship picture is he sees all of the people that have died in this room on this ship. Um, The the woman on the stairs is now uh, showing her tits and they're bleeding. Don't like that at all. And finally, the still life is a still life of his own severed head. I like that he it doesn't he doesn't recognize it as his own head. It's a severed head with a cigarette behind the ear. Is yes. does not his brain cannot comprehend that it's his own head. He does a very smart thing next. He tries to leave. And <laughs> he cannot leave. The door won't open. And what I thought was cool about this part was he's hearing the sounds from the open window, but now they seem distant. Like the the room is even swallowing sound. Nothing can get in or out. Something caught my eye and it was pot bottle filled with severed fingers. I don't even remember what that I remember that. Yeah, phrase, I kind of remember. But I don't remember what's the what was. Oh, happening. he's he's, so he's like imagine he's talking about the saxophone playing outside and how, you know, this is the sound like the 
what makes it beautiful, the melody, the sweetness of it is being sucked out by the room. So all he can hear is just this this empty thing, this empty noise. And then he kind of goes off into this fever dream again. And he says, well, he thinks to himself, like the wind blowing across a hole in a dead man's neck or a pot bottle filled with severed fingers. The thoughts he's having are nightmares. (laughs) Yes, but not nearly as scary as the final. I'm not going to call it a haunt anymore because I don't think this is a haunted room. It's now that he is stuck, he starts to smoke uh, his last cigarette as the room starts to melt. This is the most Lovecraftian. Like, I love... King has a bunch of short stories that are heavily Lovecraft-inspired, and the room melting and changing is just right out of the mythos. And when does the phone call happen? That's right about before yeah. that. Oh, was that before? Yeah, the phone. He, it's yeah, the phone screams at him. <laughs> yeah, he the phone. He, I think he picks it up maybe yeah. to call for help, and like he doesn't hear anything. There's no dial tone or ringing, but a harsh voice starts talking to him, and it says, "This is nine, nine. This is nine. This is ten, ten. We have killed your friends. Every friend is now dead. This is six, six. And that's it. <laughs> nonsense. Terrifying it, nonsense. It's, it's not a human voice. It's mm-hmm. He says it sounds like electric hair clippers that are trying to talk. Yeah. Which <laughs> is the most alien. And as this is happening, the room oh. is the walls are opening up like mouths. What and you, this light is pouring in and something is coming. Yeah. When he describes the, how the doors are changing shape and he's imagining that door's in the shape that'll allow a creature that shape to get through. What is the creature that's going to come through that weird shape door? How is that not the fucking scariest <laughs> thing you've ever read in your life, Josh Gone? Can I ask, Josh, since Ben and I have read this, this is more for you. Did you expect him to escape the way he did? No. That's pretty brutal. No, I did badass. not. I thought he was going to die. While we were watching the movie... Uh, yesterday, Josh and I, you actually said you had hoped that he would die. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that, I, that just, that feels like, uh, that feels like where this story ends because you, I never, I, most stories end with the, uh, hero dying or the hero vanquishing evil. This is the hero escapes and is fucked forever. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> it's an that middle ending that you don't often get. Uh, yeah, that's another question that I I'm sure that I've asked this of other protagonists of things that we've read. Would it have been better for him? Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I don't think so. Well, in the way no, that he would have no, done. No, yeah, I don't let's, think so. Let's talk about what he did to escape, yes. and then the. The effects that he suffered, like all people who escape 1408, whether they escape because there's a manager standing at the door and they're in pairs and they're cleaning it for 10 minutes and they're getting out, or they set themselves on fire. Yeah, Mike takes the matchbook that he talked about in his recording, lights the entire book on fire, and burns the Hawaiian shirt that is his good luck charm, and the front of the shirt just lights up. He goes up in flames in no time. 
and the door opens and just lets him out, lets him out because he thinks maybe it doesn't like cooked meat. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, there's a man walking by with an ice bucket and he pours the ice bucket on him and uh, and puts Mike out, saving Mike's life. And uh, Mike gives up writing um, and goes on to live uh, with the tape in a safe where no one will ever hear the horrible things on it. And he's haunted for the rest of his life. He can't stand the color of the sunset. Every night he closes all his blinds in his house so that he doesn't see that yellowish, that tango light. And uh, my final note is just a happy ending? Question mark? (laughs) Which is, is it? He doesn't seem like, obviously he says he has nightmares every single night. But otherwise, his life isn't as ruined as Thad Beaumont's seemed. Right. Sure. Um, he he seemed to be living with yeah, it. Yeah, I think he was doing the... He didn't let him destroy... Didn't let the experience destroy him the way Thad did. Yeah. He has health problems, chronic illnesses, like we've talked about. But he's living, I think, the best way he can. Although it did destroy his career. He's yes. not writing. Yeah, anymore. he said like when he picks up a pen, it makes him sick to his stomach to even touch a pen. I mean, it's certainly a more happy ending than one of the endings Josh and I watched last night because he was nice enough to watch it again, so we could watch it. <laughs> I watched this movie twice <laughs> in six hours. Okay, well then that's that. That's the book. With our remaining time, let's let's glance over the the movie. Um. Having watched it twice uh, in one day, what do you think about it, Josh? I dig it, man. I loved the movie. It was like surprisingly watching it twice in one day was not a hassle. It was yeah. an enjoyable experience both times. I, John Cusack it made that character a fully three dimensional person. He runs. He's a, an asshole. Then you see him at his most vulnerable holding his daughter as she turns to ash in his arms, which blew my fucking mind the first time. <laughs> you see him terrified. You see him just he's all over the place and it's amazing. It is shocking how good and compelling his performance is when the majority of the movie is him alone in a hotel room yeah. flipping out. They did a beautiful job with it. They took yes. a, what, like 50-page mm-hmm. or so story. They made it into a feature film, and it... That, uh, at least on the DVDs, runs one hour, uh, what, one hour, 40 minutes, and eight seconds. Yeah. The, <laughs> the only thing, the only issue that I had with it, and it didn't, didn't ruin the movie or take away at all for me, I wasn't into... Um, so, at one point, Mike escapes the room, and... He wakes up, um, there's, it kind of references a previous scene where he's surfing and he gets knocked off his board and he wakes up on the beach. It was all a dream. Yeah. So they did the, it's all a dream thing. And like his, his ex or his wife who he separated from is there. It, but what bothered me was they really, really hung on to that. Like I knew, Mm. I could tell right away that it wasn't real because he's seeing images of people who have died in the hotel room in this real world that he's in again and so you know that it's the room but they go for so long i disagree i think it hangs on just long enough for people who when they first or see it their first time through are like oh this is just a hallucination 
Oh, it's still going. Oh, I get still okay. I this must be what's it. And then the next scene, they have a tearaway post office. And that scene was cool. That scene I love it. It reminded me of an episode of Star Trek TNG. <laughs> of course it did. <laughs> My favorite part of the movie is there are so many awesome visuals. Yeah. Like I, I the guy that directed it, I don't remember. I don't didn't write down their name, unfortunately. I don't understand how they haven't directed more because like just the visuals alone are so cool. I literally just wrote notes. Cool shots. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the opening, it starts with him uh, at another haunted house, uh, quote, unquote. A bed and breakfast. Yeah, a bed yeah. and breakfast. And it's just him sitting alone in this attic room. But just the shot is... It's this tiny room yeah. sitting in this little <laughs> chair with this little fireplace. It's just a bizarre looking shot that made me go, mm-hmm. huh, that's visually interesting. Yeah. Um, Olin, played by Samuel L. Jackson, reaching into the cubby to gr- uh, grab the key. Really cool. Um, what about when Olin is in the fridge? The mini yeah, fridge. a tiny, tiny Samuel <laughs> yeah. Jackson living in a mini Which fridge. The Capital has, One commercial. has the <laughs> ability to be extremely corny and cheesy. But, but works. And, yeah. And it works because John Cusack's performance is so great. So he, he opens a fridge yes. and Olin yep. is there and he's taunting him more like the way he imagines he's taunting him mm-hmm. in the book, which yeah. he's not. They kind of like lean into that in the movie. And... It, it's like this miniaturized sort of shot down this long corridor, but then it comes back to John Cusack and you see him talking to the refrigerator full of refreshments. And then he just starts like hitting it and tearing stuff out. Beats and the shit out. out of that mini fridge. It's so cool. It is so great. Yeah, it's, it is a great Movie, Would you like to share the? I, I shared with CM. Would you like to share with our <laughs> listeners the great piece of IMDb trivia? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, because I'm a huge movie nerd. Anytime I watch a movie, I, I have to read the trivia on IMDb's trivia page, uh, which you get a lot of cool stuff, like uh, the fact that Keanu Reeves was originally going to play uh, Mike Enslin. Um, which honestly, I don't think would have been as good. I love Keanu as much as the next guy, but. I would watch him in anything. I don't care. <laughs> um, a lot of cool stuff, but sometimes you get stuff like my favorite trivia. Mike wears the same shoes throughout the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. Thanks, <laughs> internet. Am I wearing shoes wrong? Why is that a thing? Yeah. Am I supposed to change them frequently throughout the day? Fuck. Anyway. But it's great. Also, the movie has four endings. Yeah. That screwed me up so hard because I saw a different ending originally. And then as I was watching this ending we watched last night unfold, I was like, whoa, I just Mm -hmm. I didn't remember this at all. This is crazy. Same. I I had seen the movies in theaters back in 2007 when it came out. And I had the same exact uh, reaction in the mo- the ending that we saw the theatrical think, version the theatrical version um mike lights the room up he has this bottle of booze that he had basically conned Owen out of <laughs> yeah. which is really funny he's like Owen's like i'll give you this really fancy old booze it was like 900 dollar bottle yeah uh from the 30s he's like, like okay i'll give you this if you don't stay 
uh, in the room and he hands it to Mike and he takes a big swig and he's like, oh, I'm going to stay anyway. <laughs> but he has this bottle and he turns it into a Molotov and he lights the room up. And uh, in the theatrical ending, he is saved from the fire and he gets out and he has his tape recording and he plays it with his ex-wife and you hear his daughter on the tape. You're like, ghosts are real. That was my reaction exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's not the ending we saw. No. no. In the ending we saw, uh, Mike dies in the room and it goes to his funeral and uh, somebody who I thought for a second was Matt Besser as the priest and lowers him into the ground and uh, Tony Shaloub and his oh, wife. Yeah. Tony Shaloub's in the <laughs> I love Tony Shaloub. <laughs> I'll, I'll watch Tony. Oh. I feel about Tony Shalhoub the way you feel about Keanu Reeves (laughs) in every way. (laughs) I I don't know about that. I feel, yeah, anyway. Josh, No, I know. know. Did you guys think that his death, when they're like having the funeral and everything, did you think that was also another dream of the the room? Like he was going to wake up again? Okay, because I didn't buy it the first time, despite how effectively (laughs) you argue they hold on to it. But the second time, I was like, well, no, we're going to come back, and he's going to (laughs) live. He'll be back in the room again. Uh, So they bury him, and as they're walking to the car, Samuel Jackson shows up with the box, the box that has his personal effects that were rescued from the room, including the tape recorder. She wants nothing to do with it. Good on her. Wise and decision. Samuel Jackson tries to say he didn't die in vain because what he did to the room is going to make sure that no one ha- can stay in that yeah. room. What a dick move. Right. Yeah. Like, she doesn't why understand. Why give a shit about your room? Right. You know? No, but I understand what he was doing, though, because it seems like such a tragic, senseless, stupid accident. And I think mm-hmm. He's like he has this knowledge so ingrained in him that to him it probably made total sense. Like, oh, sure. don't you see though? He's saved lives. It's with his also death. a completely insane thing to say to another person. <laughs> like, I don't care what you're on. It's like coming up to someone whose uh, husband died in a car crash and be like, "Listen, he didn't die in vain. Your car was a vampire." Like, <laughs> what? Get away yes. from me, you lunatic. Your car but was a vampire. Maybe that's the hotel. Maybe that's the room's like influence. Because he's been in that room, mm-hmm. and it's probably changed Olin, too. Fair. Anyway, uh, he sees Mike's ghost in the back of his car, so his car is a vampire now. Yeah. Which ending was better? Uh, the, the ending when he survives and they both hear the kid, the, ch- the child's voice in the tape recorder. I really like that moment. I, I think really I agree. Yeah, I think it's more effective because you, I don't know, it just leaves you with more questions. And then this is just more final. And he is with his daughter in the end as he's dead. And that's kind of sweet, but... Maybe it's just because that's the one I saw, so. But there's also an ending that doesn't make any sense, and that's the ending where they double down on Shaloub, and... Always they, double down <laughs> always on Shaloub. And that's the uh, an ending where uh, Mike dies, and, the, and Tony Shaloub goes back to New York, and when he gets there, on his desk is a bunch of mail. He goes through it, and there's this big packet from Mike, from the dream where Mike thought he escaped and wrote this book and mailed it to his editor with the tearaway post office. But in reality, that envelope with the book is on his desk in the real world. And he starts just like reading it ravenously. It's the best thing he's ever read. Can I say something like 
terrible and probably sacrilegious sure. to people who love movies. I like that one best. What? I know it makes no it's sense, but I fucking love it. <laughs> I don't know. The more I think about it, I, I didn't think much about it when we when we watched it on YouTube. But it does like maybe the spirit or whatever it is in 1408 is maybe still... it's so powerful that he was out and he did all that no, and then it sucked no, him back in no, no, and no, he erased all their memories it's like the wendigo whatever it was like it took that world now it's the ghost is in the manuscript it's manifested yeah I don't know. it's not just self-contained to this room it has escaped now it's Mike. a car and it's a book spreading across the world <laughs> Uh, like the end, uh, like the real ending of Little Shop of Horrors. No one's gonna get that. <laughs> 1408 is Audrey 2. That was... Yeah? All right. That is a very off-mic conversation. <laughs> uh, anyway, that that is uh, 1408. I fucking love... I, I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. I think it's the scariest thing I've uh, read of King's. Um... But let, let's get to our ratings. Uh, I think you just did yours. I, well, I came. Yeah, I might as well while I'm at it. I mean, obviously five, five, five out of five blue chambray shirts. Why beat around the bush? How about you, CM? Five out of five blue chambray shirts. Four out of five blue chambray shirts. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I don't want to be the dissenter on this one. What about the movie? Let's rate that. Uh, I'll switch. I'll, I'll say four out of five. It, um, I think it was very effective and it's, it's a uh, very well done, but it's hard to compare it to the, the efficiency and speed at which the book just goes absolutely insane. I like the things they did to make it a full movie. I thought mm-hmm. um, it was just very creative and it was in keeping with the character and I think I would own it and I'd watch it again. So I'm going to give it five out of five blue chambray shirts. Uh, man, this is a tough one because uh, I watched it twice in one day and loved it, which by default should make it a five out of five. But on the other hand, if we weren't watching it for this, I don't know if and when I'd pick it up again, which makes me think four. But well, give one viewing a four out of five, and the other <laughs> a five out of five. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a five out of five blue chambray shirts for that movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it is uh, as much insanity as you would expect. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode as we tackle part one of our next book, Eyes of the Dragon, where we'll be reading chapters one through sixty-four. For Benjamin Graham and C.M. Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn, reminding you: few creatures on earth are so paranoid as a writer who believes deep in his heart that he's slumming. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thanks for listening to 1408. We hope you enjoyed this episode. In reading more about the alternate endings, apparently the director filmed three additional endings because he thought King's intention in the story was to leave the conclusion ambiguous. But none of the four endings match the original story. Maybe the ambiguity was that, although Mike technically escaped the room, 
The physical and mental scars he now has are evidence that he, like everyone else who spends any time there, didn't escape after all. Tell us what you think on our social media at Dairy Public Radio. Don't forget to visit our Patreon for cool merch and bonus content. Get your Stephen King fix between episodes on our website, constantreaders.org. And please, if you have a moment and you liked our episode, give us a rating and review on iTunes. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.